This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, everybody. I'm John Donvan, host and moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. For this episode, I got online with four debaters who argued it out over this resolution, the Electoral College has outlived its usefulness. This was a debate that we had originally planned to host with our partners at Northwestern Law School in Chicago. We were going to do it at the law school. Obviously, that did not happen. What did happen was that we had instead a great debate digitally on what has turned out to be an incredibly timely topic. So let's get to it. The Electoral College, it's this unique construct of indirect democracy that, well, it's, it's not a college, as the term is commonly used, but it sure is electoral in that its members, who are currently maxed out at 538, have been the actual electors of every president we've ever had since we've had a constitution, even those five times in our history when the popular vote went to someone else. In recent memory, that happened in the 2000 election. It happened in the 2016 election. So what were the founders thinking? That's a question that right now the Supreme Court is considering in an Electoral College case. But why did the founders think the Electoral College was needed? And what good has come of it? And also, what harm has come of it? Well, in these questions, we've been thinking there are the makings of a debate. So we had it. Four really, really good debaters said yes or no to this statement, the Electoral College has outlived its usefulness. As always, um, our debate goes in three rounds, and our audience tuning in online voted to decide our winner. But you can still weigh in on this one yourself if you're just listening for the first time to this debate. We are taking votes right now at iq2us.org. That's iq the number 2us.org. If you go there, you can cast your first vote before you hear the arguments. You can vote for or against or undecided on the resolution. You know what? I'll give you a chance to do that right now. I'll wait for you. And remember, you cast two votes, one now and one after you've heard the argument. And it's the team that changes the most minds who will be our winner. So go do that. I'll wait for you. So let's meet our debaters. First up to speak for the resolution, the Electoral College has outlived its usefulness, Jamel Bowie. Jamel, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Jamel, you are a New York Times columnist and a political analyst for CBS News. You are also an alumnus of our series, so it's great to have you back. Also arguing on your team for the resolution, I want to say hello to Kate Shaw. Kate, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Hey, John, thanks so much for having me. And you're a professor at the Cardoza School of Law and co-director of the Florsheimer Center for Constitutional Democracy. You're also a host of the very popular law podcast, Strict Scrutiny. So that's the team arguing for the resolution. The Electoral College has outlived its usefulness. Now let's meet the team arguing against that very resolution. First, let's say hello to Tara Ross. Tara, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Hi, John. Thanks for having us. It's great to have you with us. I want folks to know that you are the author of a lot of books about the Electoral College, including Why We Need the Electoral College. You're also a former lawyer and editor of the Texas Review of Law and Politics. And your partner, I want to welcome also to Intelligence Squared, Bradley Smith. Bradley, hi. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. Hi. Thanks, John. Pleasure to be here. And you are a professor at Capital University Law School, and you have served as commissioner, vice chairman, and chairman of the Federal Election Commission. Welcome. Uh, I want everybody to know that, as always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then you, those folks out in the world, our online audience, get to vote to decide who the winner is. All right, I think we are ready to move on to round one, opening statements from each debater in turn. Those statements will be four minutes each. Our resolution is the Electoral College has outlived its usefulness. And here, first up to speak for that resolution, Jamel Bowie, columnist for The New York Times. Jamel, your time starts right now. I'm going to begin uh, with a discussion of how we got to the Electoral College in the first place. 
And the thing, key thing I want everyone to understand is that the Electoral College that we have, the one we will use in November's election, is that not actually the one that was ratified in 1788. Uh, that Electoral College fell out of use very quickly. And what we have is essentially a, an extra constitutional mechanism to deal with the exigies of politics as they developed. Uh, from the beginning of the Constitutional Convention, and specifically when they began thinking about the national executive, the delegates were trying to balance four, essentially four competing things when it came to how to choose a national executive. Uh, they wanted a voice for the people. They wanted uh, fair representation for slave states. Uh, they wanted independence from the legislature. And they had to deal with the very simple question of how do you actually choose uh, a national executive in a big, large, diverse country? They cycled through a few things. Uh, several delegates, including James Madison, proposed popular election. Others proposed choosing from the Congress. Uh, but by the time uh, they came to a conclusion, which was at the very last minute of the convention, they decided they would do uh, this elector-based system, that uh, each state uh, would choose electors who would gather together as a kind of Congress that would filter through candidates. Uh, they would the majority, Whoever won the majority of electors uh, would become president, uh, runner-up vice president, and if there was no winner, it'd go to the House, who would choose on the basis of the delegations. No one was really entirely satisfied with this when they came to the conclusion, but uh, everyone expected more or less that the president of the convention, George Washington, would become the first chief, chief executive, and this was a, a straightforward way to get George Washington to become president of the United States. So no one was really too worried about it. There was debate uh, over it uh, during the ratification debates, but it wasn't a big sticking point. No one was too worried about mob rule in these discussions. Um, they weren't worried about excess of democracy. Uh, usually when the founders talked about democracy, they were talking about Athenian-style direct assemblies, not representative elections. So uh, it works in 1789 and 1792. And then to choose Washington, and then it promptly falls apart. 1796 is highly contested. 1800 is famously contested because Aaron Burr and uh, Thomas Jefferson get the same number of electoral votes, and uh, this ends up, you know, nearly tearing the country apart. And the Twelfth Amendment is passed to ensure that electors can choose a president and a vice president on separate ballots, and to avoid a repeat of 1800. But by this point, this is key. By 1800, the idea of a non-partial body of people selecting a president uh, is gone. We have partisanship, we have political parties, we have partisan electors, we have the expectation that they will choose on a partisan basis. And so at that point, the Electoral College, as designed, has basically elevated its usefulness. It's gone within 15 years. And what emerges, the winner-take-all system, uh, uh, it's highly partisan uh, electoral choices, is basically an attempt to get around the conditions of American politics at the time. Uh, surviving founders uh, lament this, and even Madison calls for a constitutional amendment to get rid of winner-take-all at the very least. Um, and by the close of the 19th century, we've had several electoral college misfires um, or misfires of this new strange system we've devised, and there is an emerging consensus that we should do something different. Um, my debate partner will talk about uh, the Electoral College as it developed in the 20th century and the problems associated with it. Thank you. Thank you, Jamel Bowie. And now we move the uh, argument over to the other side, arguing against the resolution that the Electoral College has outlived its usefulness. I want to once again welcome Tara Ross. She is author of Why We Need the Electoral College. Tara, the screen is yours. So I'm going to start with a story that might surprise everybody. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, civil rights leaders came out enthusiastically in favor of the Electoral College. Now, this was no token gesture of support. They wrote editorials. They testified before Congress. In general, they seemed terrified that if the Electoral College were to go away, racial minorities would be harmed. In fact, National Urban League President Vernon Jordan defended the Electoral College saying, take away the Electoral College and the importance of that Black vote melts away. Blacks, instead of being crucial to victory in major states, simply become 10% of the total electorate with reduced impact. So he and other civil rights leaders noted the benefits that go unappreciated today. First, he noted that third parties cannot gain too big of a foothold in, with the Electoral College. Now, maybe you're not too happy about that because we all sometimes get frustrated with our two choices. 
But the good side is that extremists cannot have too much of an influence on our election. In particular, the civil rights leaders noted that segregationist George Wallace in 1968 was unable to get a foothold. They noted other benefits as well. They noted that the concentration of minority voters in certain large urban areas can be an advantage. Jordan called this the empathy factor. Those who live in the same city tend to have shared concerns. So the result tends to be coalition building within cities across racial and other lines that might normally divide us. Those coalitions can swing a large metro area and thus the state. But the beauty of the Electoral College is that it balances us in so many ways. So while urban areas may have a disproportionate power in some parts of the country, in other parts of the country, rural and, and small states can make a big difference. And this is because of how electors are allocated, partly based on population and partly based on one state, one vote. So we have a balance. And the result of this, historically speaking, has been that we have encouraged presidential candidates to build coalitions. You can't win if you're catering to one region or one type of voter or one special interest group. Those who do the best in the Electoral College have done the best job of coalition building. Historically, those who do a terrible job tend to fail. So your, the virtual audience is looking at me and saying, but Tara, that's ridiculous. Look how divided and angry we are. I agree, we are in a bad place. Both parties are broken. Nobody's doing a great job of coalition building and it's, it's not pretty. But the good news is we have been here before. We were here in the years after the Civil War, stark division between North and South, lots of anger and division and upset. But the Electoral College helped us. And the reason it helped us is because it was unproductive to stay in that place. Democrats could not win with only their safe areas. They, they, did, they simply did not have enough safe areas. By contrast, Republicans could win with only their safe areas, but just barely. If they lost even one part of the country or one state, then they would lose the presidency to the Democrats. So over time, the incentives were to reach out to people that weren't like you, to learn about people in the middle and to build coalitions. And in fact, by the 1930s, the Democrats were winning in repeated landslides, as we know. So I would just encourage everybody to remember that the Electoral College helps us today. When we are our most angry and our most divided, it's actually when we need the Electoral College the most because it reminds us to come together as Americans and to reach a hand across the aisle to those who aren't entirely like us. So I would urge everyone to vote against the motion. The Electoral College still serves us today. Tara Ross, former lawyer and editor of the Texas Review of Law and Politics. Thank you very much, Tara. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll have more opening statements on the resolution the Electoral College has outlived its usefulness when we return. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. We are in the middle of round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. Our resolution is the Electoral College has outlived its usefulness. Now let's hear from Kate Shaw, law professor and co-host of the podcast Strict Scrutiny. She's arguing in favor of the resolution. So I think Jamel has very successfully demonstrated that the best reading of the drafting history of the Constitution is that the Electoral College is essentially an 11th hour and imperfect solution to one of the most vexing problems that faced the delegates at the Constitutional Convention, which was how to pick the president. And I think that that history is an important corrective to the suggestion that is often made that reforming or abolishing the Electoral College would be inconsistent with the framers' design or the framers' desires. On a number of occasions, this peculiar process set forth in the Constitution has either failed to produce a result or has awarded the presidency to someone other than the person who amassed the most votes in the country. That's true about 1800, 1824, 1876, 1888. All are failures of different sorts. But let me fast forward a little bit to more recent examples with which people might be familiar, 2000 and 2016. 
So in the year 2000, of course, George W. Bush wins the presidency uh, narrowly with 271 electoral votes to Al Gore's 266, although losing the popular vote by about half a million. Of course, in, in 2016, 16 years later, Donald Trump wins a decisive electoral college victory over Hillary Clinton while losing the popular vote by nearly 3 million. And, you know, standing alone, no single incident is a complete indictment of the electoral college. But this is an exceptionally high rate of error and rate of malfunction uh, for something as consequential as the selection of the U.S. president. And I think that is especially true because we now have some political scientists predicting that we are at an increased likelihood of a recurrence of this kind of divergence between the popular vote on the one hand and the Electoral College outcome on the other. So let me turn briefly to current practice. So the Constitution gives each state the power to choose electors in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct. In the early days, actually, state legislatures themselves sometimes picked electors and various other experiments were undertaken. Um, but relatively quickly, every state allowed its voters to choose its electors. Uh, and since about the mid-19th century, most states have awarded all of their electoral votes to the winner of the state's popular vote. Today, 48 states use what's known as the winner-take-all scheme, with Maine and Nebraska differing slightly. Uh, and so these developments, people picking their electors and then the electors casting their votes to align with the votes uh, of the state's uh, voters, have occurred as we have marched in other ways toward a more inclusive democracy with the 15th and the 19th Amendments and the direct election of United States senators. Um, but the electoral college system as it has developed, which of course uh, diverges quite significantly from the originally designed scheme, has also had some deeply troubling consequences. Uh, and in particular, the winner-take-all character uh, of this scheme means that today only a handful of states matter in selecting the president. And those are states with closely divided electorates, so-called purple states. So very blue states like New York or California, very red states like Alabama or Mississippi are utterly irrelevant and thus erased from the single most important election in the country. Instead, a handful of states, maybe up to a dozen, are the ones that choose the president. The states are random in a sense in that they just happen to have very closely divided electorates. Um, but they also share certain features, and those features distort our politics. Their populations are older and more rural and on average whiter than the country as a whole. Larry Lessig gives as an example the prevalence of debates about coal in the presidential election cycle, where seven or eight times as many Americans have jobs in the solar sector, and yet solar never comes up in presidential elections. So the idea that the framers intended a system in which the presidency would be decided by this pretty arbitrary subset of the states with no role for other states or their voters is pretty hard to defend. The scheme exacerbates polarization and divisions and creates this distorted sense of the country and its political geography. We're not divided into red and blue. In fact, everyone is everywhere. Thank you very much, Kate Shaw. And our final opening statement comes from Bradley Smith. Bradley Smith is a law professor and former chairman of the FEC. Here in the United States, majority rule is clearly a very important value, but it's not our only political value. Our constitution and institutions contain numerous anti-majoritarian features that are aimed at protecting and enhancing other values. The Bill of Rights most obviously simply takes a lot of items off the table. No matter how much you're bothered by fake news, you can't censor the press. We have separation of powers, enumerated powers, bicameralism, judicial review, and numerous other checks and balances. Many people forget that it's possible to win a majority of the U.S. Senate without winning a majority of the votes cast for senators. It's possible to win a majority of the U.S. House and to elect the Speaker, the second most powerful official in the country, without winning a total vote for the House of Representatives. Many people are also under the mistaken belief that the United States is somehow unique in this respect that we're the only country where you can lose the popular vote and still be elected the chief executive. That's emphatically not true. In countries that use proportional representation, this happens when no candidate gains a majority, and then afterwards the various parties get together and they negotiate a coalition, and sometimes it's the winner of the popular vote, and sometimes it's not who heads up that coalition. And this has happened in recent decades or recent uh, elections in Sweden, Norway, Germany, Israel, Italy, and other democracies. In other countries, such as the United States, chief executives can be elected outright without winning the popular vote. This happened in Japan in 2003. Since World War II, it's happened twice in Great Britain. It's happened twice in New Zealand. And it's also happened at least twice, not only in the United States, but in the other three democracies, great geographic democracies that span a continent or a subcontinent, that is India, Australia, and Canada. Have all of these countries got it wrong? I mean, our system is different, but the principle is the same. So are Kate and Jamel ready to condemn all of these other democracies for just getting it wrong? 
Now, saying that the Electoral College occasionally gives us a president who did not win the most popular votes is merely a statement of fact. It's not an argument. And to call such results misfires is to fail to understand why we have an Electoral College. The question is, why do most democracies, especially those spanning a continent, want a system that about once in every 12 elections, and that's what it's been in the United States, results in someone winning the chief executive's office without winning the popular vote? Let me suggest that our Electoral College recognizes that in a vast, incredibly diverse country such as ours, it matters how electoral majorities are created. You don't have to win the popular vote to win the Electoral College, but you have to win a lot of votes, and you have to win a lot of states too. And that necessarily means that the winning candidate will have appeal that extends beyond any one or two regions or broad social classes. Sometimes people complain about this focus on swing states, but there's two points here. First, those other states aren't irrelevant. Try winning the Electoral College if you're a Democrat without winning California. It's very, very relevant. Secondly, it's just that the voters there tend to agree. Secondly, those states have tremendous diversity. There were 17 states in the last election that, were, that would have swung with less than a five-point swing, right? They would have gone to the other candidate. Those include three of the five states with the highest white percentage of voters, but also four or five with the highest percentage of Hispanic voters and three of the eight with the highest percentage of black voters. They include states from every geographic region in the country. They include states that are highly unionized, states that are lightly unionized, high-tax states, low-tax states, big states, small states. In this way, the Electoral College fosters governing majorities that are generally more stable over time and thus creates more freedom and more prosperity. Now, there are practical advantages to the Electoral College, and I hope we'll be able to explore those in the rest of our time. It curbs fraud. It allows for local election rules tailored to local conditions. It allows for experimentation with voting procedures like voting by mail, and it avoids the catastrophic possibility of a national recount. Let's be careful that we don't throw something away unless we understand why we have it. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Bradley Smith. And that concludes our first round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, our formal opening statements. And now we move on to our second round. And our second round is much more of a freewheeling conversation in which the debaters can address one another directly and challenge each other and also take questions from me and from you, members of our audience. On the resolution, the Electoral College has outlived its usefulness. We heard Jamel Bowie and Kate Shaw um, they went back to the beginning, which is relevant because we're talking about outlived its usefulness, to, to look at what its original purpose was. And what they point out is that the Electoral College was designed by the Founding Fathers uh, as a kind of cobbled together concept to solve a thorny problem of how to elect the president. And it was designed for a very specific time, a very specific place, and a very specific, almost politics-free era, which was soon set aside. They point out that within 12 years, the Founding Fathers, uh, or, or rather their successors, began to tinker with the concept. So pointing out that it's not sacrosanct or set in stone, it was never anybody's ideal way to elect the president, and they also say that it has a high rate of malfunction. Their opponents, Brad Smith and Tara Rose, number one, they take a very interesting philosophical position that the idea that the popularly chosen candidate would not be president is not in itself necessarily as terrible or as uh, as wrong as it might sound, that we do that with a lot of other elections, a lot of other countries do that. They further point out that there are practical advantages to having uh, an electoral college, that it can be a bulwark against voter fraud, etc. And they talk also about its benefits in situations they cite specifically during the civil rights era in which uh, civil rights activists felt that the presence of the electoral college kept out extremist uh, parties that would have been damaging to their interests. And they say that in a very important way, the Electoral College serves to keep relevant parts of the population that would be electorally irrelevant if the college uh, were not there. I want to dig into some of this, but I really want to start with, you know, Bradley, you made the statement that this notion that the candidate that most of the population chooses in an election, at least a plurality, if not a majority, not becoming the president, which seems to be the thing that most people, I think, at a sort of visceral level would find questionable or objectionable, is really not that problematic. Uh, and I want to take that to Jamel Bowie first. Uh, Jamel, what do you take of that point? It's an interesting point, but I think the, the problem with it is that Bradley's examples are fundamentally different than the kind of presidential governments we have here. That in these coalition governments, you can think of executive power as not necessarily being winner-take-all. I Means that there's, there's an extent to which that executive power is, is shared. 
in a system where executive power itself is not winner-take-all, in that kind of system, a party that does not win a plurality of the vote but then forms a, co- a majority of the vote but then forms a coalition with other parties to form a majority, that's just a completely different kind of scenario than we're talking about in the United States where executive power is singular, where it's not tied to the legislature, where it is essentially winner-take-all. Uh, that there's only one president uh, and only one party can occupy the presidency in practical terms. And in that kind of situation, it does become sort of democratically problematic for uh, the winner to not have received a majority of the vote. And polarization is really important here. You can imagine a situation in which American politics are far less polarized and be a popular vote loser, electoral vote winner, then forms a kind of coalition government upon taking office. This is basically what happens with the Lincoln administration, right? Because we have polarization, because the person who wins the presidency tends to govern for the sake of a particular partisan ideological agenda, it makes it even more important that a majority of the public has some uh, has assented to that agenda. Let me, I was going to go to Bradley, but I want to actually, Bradley, if you can uh, cede the, the moment to Tara, because uh, Jamel also turned the point into something that Tara was talking about, which was this whole issue of coalition building. So, Tara, how do you, how do you respond to Jamel's argument? Well, I guess we're just disagreeing on how we see this play out. I, the way I see it, it's the reason that they do those things in those other countries is because they're looking for a way to ensure that a variety of voices is reflected in the process. And they aren't selecting one person. So I guess I'm not a prime minister or what have you. So I guess I'm not understanding that part of Jamal's argument. But look, the point is not, you know, America is unique. We're not just like any of those countries. And I hope we're not trying to be. But the point is just to bring in a variety of voices. This is the one person who is expected to represent all of us. And America is a unique, huge, diverse country. The founders thought 13 states was too diverse, too big for us to to possibly be self-governing is how they would have seen it. They thought it would be dangerous. And of course, they solved their problem by creating some of these checks and balances in our system, including the Electoral College. But we need something special because if we don't have something special, what's going to end up happening is you're going to have a president who represents the pro-choice group or the pro-gun group or the whatever, it because it, it, you would just have nothing that would force people to come together and to, to think about their fellow Americans and what you have in common instead of what you have that's different. So, Bradley, um, you know, Jamel made the point in his opening statement that the thing was designed for a specific time and place and in a very specific political situation or politics-free situation, and then it changed. And then basically saying a thing that was designed for a situation 230 years ago has has a it's very very reasonable that its usefulness would be outdated and i want to ask you counterfactual question if there hadn't been an electoral college but we had the opportunity to create one now would we want to have an electoral college uh you know i don't know right we'd go into debate and and i don't know Mm-hmm. But I think I, I, I can tell you this, right? First, I, I want to point out, responding to Jamel, he makes the he addressed only a kind of a minor part of my point, which was uh, countries that use proportional representation, where, by the way, oftentimes the head of the government that leads that coalition that forms after the election is not the party that got the most votes. It's the party that got second or third most votes. But he ignores the part that's most relevant, which is countries such as the United Kingdom, New Zealand, India, Canada, Australia, all of which use uh, systems that do not rely on proportional representation and consistent coalition building created after the election results. Uh, In each of those cases, though, you can win a majority and you can win the prime ministership or whatever the office is called without having uh, uh, won a pure majority or even a plurality of the popular vote. But what you have to win in all of those countries is a lot of votes. And you have to win, especially in a large country like the United States, India, Canada, Australia, geographically diverse countries, you have to win votes across a broad spectrum of interest. You know, the United States is very, very different. Montana is very different from New York City or New Jersey. And you have to put together a coalition that can carry that full regime. Now, 
if we go back to the original use of the, the uh, Electoral College, all I'll point out is that many things we find over time have uses that are different than what we might have, might have originally designed them to be. Um, it may be that, uh, you know, things are not the same as they were in 1800. It should be noted that the Electoral College is not the same as the one that was created in 1788. It has been changed. But I think it has served us very, very well. We're a very stable country, and it's hard to find many countries that have as good a record of electing chief executives as we have in the United States. So let me bring in Kate Shaw. And Kate, you were the person who cited the, the put out the language there that the Electoral College has this high rate of malfunction. And your opponents dismissed the notion that there have been meaningful malfunctions. So dig into that point. I, sure. I'd like to hear more about what you mean by a malfunction. What constitutes yeah. the system not working? And I think it ties back, actually, John, into your first question, which is there is this basic kind of political and moral intuition that the person who wins the most votes in an election ought to be the victor in that election. And um, I think that by the time the Electoral College gets sort of realigned in first in 1803 through the 12th Amendment, but then over the decades in the 19th century in which states are basically assigning their electors to simply follow the will of the voters of those states. That is the logic that is animating those developments, though it is filtered through this prism of federalism because it is the majority voters in the states as opposed to the majority of the voters in the country um, that the electors are bound uh, to follow. Um, But Brad said in response to that, you know, he he mentioned some of these kind of comparative questions of how other countries sort of um, uh, do or don't. Uh, sort of implement this intuition that the person who gets the most votes ought to win. Um, But it is, and and he cited, you know, to come back to the domestic context, he cited a couple of examples of uh, sort of U.S. examples that are inconsistent with that general principle. And I think the two, of course, are the Senate, which, of course, um, uh, in terms of sort of your national vote share, right, you, of course, could get the most votes in the country, right, in support of your political party and yet not control the United States Senate, right? The Senate does not hew to the basic logic of, Uh, one person, one vote, right? Sort of basic political equality and majority rule. Um, And then the fact that because of gerrymandering, I gather is what Brad was referencing, that is actually also true in the House. It is possible to get more votes nationwide and yet not to have your party control uh, the outcome in in the House. And and I guess I would just say that that those examples... um, First, the Senate is a historical anomaly in exactly the way that the Electoral College is a historical anomaly, and it is inconsistent with contemporary values, particularly political equality. And that's just not, you know, the values that sort of I hold, but ones that the Supreme Court in the one-person, one-vote cases uh, has said are essential to our democracy, and that where there are exceptions or deviations from that principle, uh, there are specific articulable reasons for that. Um, And I'm just not sure any of the reasons given in defense of the Electoral College's deviation from that principle are at all persuasive. We'll be taking questions from the audience when we come back. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S. We're in the middle of round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. Now let's hear a question from the audience. Hi, my name is Emily Stewart. I'm a reporter at Vox. So one thing that happens to me sometimes when I write about the Electoral College is that I get readers writing me and saying, hey, if we abolish it, then what will happen is that only cities and blue states will get to decide elections. And my question is, how do you respond to those people that live in Nebraska or Wisconsin or states with less of, that would have less of a say? Thanks, Emily, very much for your question. And I want to take that to Kate. What's your response to that? Yeah, I mean, I've heard that argument as well. I mean, I just, as a matter of numbers, the five biggest cities in the country have something like 6% of the population. So I think there is this idea out there that if you went to a national popular vote, that literally candidates would go to five cities and those five cities would determine the fate of the rest of us. And that just doesn't track the numerical reality. Presidents would have to work hard in many more states than they currently work hard in to amass votes. Now, could they go to every rural county in every state? Of course not. But, you know, you want to look at the way you run a real popular election across a broad geographic area, you have 50 laboratories, right? Governors have to win statewide. And do they just go to the two or three or four or five biggest cities in their states? Of course not. We all have to concede with some humility that we don't know precisely how a national, a truly national presidential campaign would play out. But I do think it's easy to dismiss the suggestion that a few cities would run the show. Jamel, you go ahead. I think there's also an important conceptual jump you have to make. Under a national popular election, state voting will matter for state offices, but for the national office, it will not be necessarily relevant 
what the borders of your state are. And so uh, someone in Wyoming or Montana, their state isn't necessarily the relevant unit of political action. It's, It's them as an individual. The lines of connection and affiliation and political interests aren't actually state by state. And the framers recognize this. Madison made this exact point in terms of the Senate. I'd like to go to another audience question, and this one comes from Dylan. Dylan, welcome to Intelligence Squared, and please tell us your question. Um, When the Founding Fathers created the Electoral College, one of the chief functions they envisioned it performing was that of a fail-safe against um, the sometimes poor judgment of popular opinion. Electors could step in to prevent the presidency from, quote, from Federalist 68, falling into the lot of any man who is not in an eminent degree endowed with the requisite qualifications. There's never been a meaningful enough number of faithless electors for the body to perform this function. Is there a way to reform the college so it can perform these functions? Or are there alternative constitutional arrangements that we can make to prevent unqualified candidates from succeeding? Okay, thank you, Dylan. And your question goes to, you know, what's a solution for the future, which is not strictly speaking what we're debating. But what what I found interesting in your question was your presumption that the founding fathers didn't trust democracy, didn't trust the general public to make wise decisions, and that the original concept was that there would be a group of wise men and white men in that particular case, but that their wisdom was the thing that was that would qualify them for this role of choosing the president for us in the long run. Since we started a little bit going back to the beginning, I'd like to go to you, Bradley. That notion, I think, inherent in that, and I think Dylan likes the idea that the Electoral College was meant to protect us from irrational choices made by the public. And this is what the Supreme Court case is about now. They should be able to make choices based on their consciences rather than reflecting the popular will. This brings up a a lot of different points, but I, I tend to think that, yes, they thought electors would use their judgment, but it would be very rare that you would want electors to go against the will of their state as expressed by their voters, right? A lot of people look at, for example, 2016 and think that they maybe they think that Donald Trump should not have been elected president and electors should have turned against him. Well, how would Trump's voters have reacted to that? What would that do toward a sense of how the country is is operating? So I have generally been in favor of the notion that, in fact, electors are not bound. But at the same time, it would be very, very rare that you would want an elector to go against the understanding that people bring into the election that if my party or my candidate carries my state, that's how my electors are going to vote. Jamel, I thought you said in your opening statement that you do not believe that the founding fathers were worried about mob rule. Yeah, I, I, that's right. I think I think when it comes to the notes of the convention, the the recollections of the people who were there, it's clear that that was not their primary concern, that they were thinking really in, in practical terms. When it comes for to justifying the Electoral College to, to the voters to ratify the Constitution, this was one of the arguments Hamilton in particular used to, to defend the Electoral College. A, a thing I want to come to uh, in Bradley's answer to the question um, is you know the faithless elect- elector question and the sense that the voters of each state do have the expectation that um, faithless electors, meaning electors who do not vote in accordance with the partisan decision of the state or of the, the majority of, of voters in the state. So I live in Virginia. If Virginia votes for Joe Biden this November and one of Joe Biden's electors casts a vote for uh, Donald Trump, that elector would be a faithless elector. Um but this expectation that voters in the states that 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 the, their electors will vote in accordance with the partisan choice of the state, I think, sits at cross purposes with this idea that the electoral college is meant to enhance the representation of political minorities in the country. Right? If you live in a state where fifty point one percent of the voters supported one candidate and forty nine point nine percent of the voters supported the other candidate, and under the rules as they exist. That forty nine point nine percent is politically disenfranchised, and I would I would ask uh, listeners, watchers, to consider the extent to which, if you don't agree with getting rid of the electoral college, that the winner take all rules that we've adopted, that we've that we've grafted onto this institution, the extent to which they serve to rob millions of people of meaningful political representation um, in every state of the union. 
Kate, you want to jump into this or do you want to pass? I would just take one beat to say there is a distinction, I think, between a scheme that erases duly cast votes the way our current state-based electoral college scheme does, and a system in which you simply fail to successfully carry a majority support for a position. And I think that, of course, no one is claiming that any party that loses in a majoritarian contest is thereby disenfranchised, um, but that there's a distinction between losing in, in a genuine and fair majoritarian contest and losing in a scheme in which certain votes are simply not relevant uh, and uh, thus effectively not counted. Tara? I, I'm going to push back on some of this. Okay, first of all, nobody's being disenfranchised. We, we have changed how we think about this election. But the fact of the matter is that we are talking about state-level elections, not one national election. And in that state-level election for presidential elector, there are winners or losers. Also, this is not a permanent situation. Um, several of the states that, that were mentioned here as, as being supposedly immovable for, you know, like they'll never be able to make their voices heard because they're so solidly Republican. Well, no, they voted for Clinton not that long ago. Again, the Electoral College is about balance and how you balance things out over the country. And, you know, for the rural voters in New York who probably feel really awful about not being represented in their state government or in their presidential election, well, there are rural voters and small city voters and small states in other parts of the country that are getting inflated a little bit. It all balances out. And at the end of the, the day, what we have is a system that reflects the variety of voices in this nation. And that is supposed to be our end game. Okay. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. We are about to hear brief closing statements by each debater in turn. So let's move on to round three, closing remarks. And here to make his statement closing the argument, the Electoral College has outlived its usefulness, is Jamel Bowie. Jamel, once again, the screen is all yours. I mentioned at the beginning of my remarks and throughout this conversation that not long after uh, the the founding, 20, 30 years later, um, some surviving people who participated in all of this, particularly James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, um, were dismayed at how the Electoral College played out. They worried that winner take all, that the hyper, the partisanship involved um, would create unnecessary factionalism, that it would create a necessary political division, that it would lead to the under-representation of political minorities and encourage presidencies that don't actually govern for the entire nation. And it's true that there have been large parts, large swaths of this country's history where we have avoided some of these things. But because of polarization happening in our culture, not just in our politics, but in our culture, uh, that, that this collection of ills that result from this uh, extra constitutional method of selecting a president, one that wasn't designed, that kind of just emerged as we, uh, as we, as our politics emerged. Uh, as we've become more polarized, we have been subject to these ills more and more. Um, people genuinely believe that there are somehow red states and blue states. That if you live uh, in a in, in New York, that you are therefore a Manhattan liberal. That if you live in Wyoming, that you are uh, a rural conservative. And and Americans, I feel, uh, have forgotten that political diversity exists in every state of the union. That coalitions can be built across regions and across states. That interests aren't aren't tied to state lines. They're tied uh, to things that go beyond them. Support the, the electoral college has outlived its, its usefulness in part uh, because it's no longer useful to think about our politics in these kind of rigid terms. We're too polarized, and what the electoral college does is enhance that polarization. And if you don't want to enhance it, I think you should vote uh, on our side. Thanks very much, uh, Jamel. Our, our next speaker will be speaking against the resolution. In her closing statement, here is Tara Ross. I'm going to ask everybody to put themselves in the place of the founders in a way perhaps that they've never quite done before. The founders lived at a unique moment in time. They had just fought a war for self-governance. Self-governance was really, really important to them. They'd laid their lives on the line. They'd lost fathers and sons. And they also knew something else that we had forgotten. Okay, it's not enough to be self-governing. They knew that if they had been given a seat at the table in parliament, then they would have been outvoted time and time again by the majority of citizens at home in England. So the founders had a, had a problem on their hands. Fortunately, the founders also lived at a unique moment in time where there were no partisan interests. 
there was no Republican Party or Democratic Party. What they had to help them was their knowledge of history and their knowledge of human nature. And they knew that power corrupts. They knew what had worked and what had not worked in other democracies that came before them. So they came up with a unique solution. And the unique solution is our constitution, which is an incredible blend of some democratic self-governing factors, but also some Republican factors, small r, deliberation and compromise and federalism, states acting as states. This unique blend ensures that we can be a huge diverse country that still manages to govern itself without ignoring some part of the country. So the Electoral College has not outlived its usefulness because we are, if anything, greater and more diverse than we were before. We are more in need of a unique solution to this problem of how do you combine self-governance with an avoidance of majority tyranny. So I would urge you to vote no on the resolution. Thank you, Tara Ross. And our next debater will be arguing on the opposite side. Once again, for the resolution, the Electoral College has outlived its usefulness. Here is Kate Shaw. Thank you. So... Look, the ideals of both genuinely representative democracy and of basic political equality are ones we have moved ever closer to throughout the country's history, imperfectly, inconsistently, but steadily. Um, And it is not to return to something that Brad said at the outset, that in a democracy like ours, everything must be put to a popular vote. Think about the role of courts in our system, right, who often do sit to invalidate laws passed by majorities in Congress or the states. But in general, and particularly when we're talking about elections, any deviation from basic principles of representative democracy and political equality require genuine and compelling justifications. And instead, what we seem to be hearing are post hoc justifications of this idiosyncratic scheme that we happen to have today. Um, Look, to make one final point that actually turns a bit away from what we've been mostly talking about today, The presidency today is a massively powerful institution. We can debate how well that power fits within our constitutional scheme. We can debate the wisdom of having a presidency like today's president, but no one should want an unchecked president. So it's important to ask how the mechanisms that operate to check the president have performed in recent years. And in a word, I would say they have performed badly. Take Congress, an important rival of the president. Um, It has been lax at best in its oversight of the president. Whatever you thought of the impeachment case, against President Trump, one big takeaway seemed to be it's impossible to impeach, convict, and remove a president if his party or even a good number of co-partisans control the Senate. Courts as well have been extraordinarily deferential to the president. And when those institutions have failed to act to check the president, they have frequently done so, pointing out that the most important check on the president is at the ballot box, that he is the only person in our constitutional scheme who is elected by the people as a whole. And so long as we have the Electoral College, That's actually not the system that we have. And if the ballot box isn't a real check on the president and none of these other checks operate, we actually don't have a president. We have a king. And that is about as far as you can get from the idea of America. So please, I I urge you to vote yes on the resolution. Thank you, Kate Shaw. And finally, making his closing argument against the resolution, the Electoral College has outlived its usefulness, arguing against Bradley Smith. I want to thank everyone for watching. I want to thank Kate and Jamel for their thoughts. The great political scientist uh, Walter Burns once said, in all the years I have engaged on this issue, I have yet to encounter a critic of the Electoral College who argues that a president chosen by direct popular vote is likely to be a better president. The goal of our Constitution is good government, and the purpose of the Electoral College is to elect good presidents. We love to bash our presidents, and that's okay. It's a uniquely American thing to do. But if we set aside our partisanship and skepticism, we see that our list of chief executives is probably unrivaled by any country, save possibly the United Kingdom, which also allows the second-place finisher in the popular vote to win the prime minister's office. It's not just early presidents like Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, but mid-20th-19th century presidents like Polk and Lincoln and Cleveland and McKinley, and 20th century presidents like Wilson and the Roosevelts and Coolidge, and in the post-war period, Truman and Ike and Kennedy and Reagan and G.W. Bush and Clinton and Obama. And while all of us will disagree with any number of them on policy, leaving that aside, that's a pretty distinguished group when it comes to raw executive talent. So I often hear an argument that goes something like this. If you could go back in time, would you adopt the Electoral College? My answer is simple. I kind of said it earlier. I don't really know what I would have done if I'd been a delegate to the Constitutional Convention, but I know this. If I were transported back in time to September of 1787 and watched the delegates walk out of Independence Hall, 
I hoped that I would have the good sense not to lecture the likes of Washington, Madison, Franklin, James Wilson, and Alexander Hamilton about how to structure a successful republic and how derelict they had been in not anointing direct election by plurality vote of the electorate as the sole legitimizing principle for a chief executive. We should not fear change, but when something has a long distinguished pedigree and has created such a prosperous free society as we live in, we should be very careful and humble before tossing it aside. So I urge people to vote no on this resolution. And remember, the Electoral College doesn't outlive its usefulness just because our favorite son hasn't won a couple of elections. Thanks very much, Bradley Smith. And that concludes round three of our Intelligence Square debate. Now it's time to declare a winner. Remember, it's the side that changes the most minds between the first and the second votes that is declared our winner. We've had two votes now on the resolution. The Electoral College has outlived its usefulness. Here's how it went. In the first vote, 63% of our audience agreed with the resolution, 23% were against it, and 14% were undecided. So the team for the motion, their first vote was 63%. Their second vote was 70%. The side pulled up seven percentage points. That's the number to beat. Let's look at the team against the resolution. Their first vote was 23%. Their second vote was 28%. That's five percentage points, not quite enough to win. It means the team arguing for the resolution, Jamel Bowie and Kate Shaw, have won our debate by getting more of you to switch to the side saying yes to the resolution. The Electoral College has outlived its usefulness. I want to thank you all for joining us. I want to thank our debaters, and I want you all to remember that the online voting is still going on at iq2us.org, so go cast your second vote right now. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. This debate was produced in partnership with the Northwestern Pritzker School of Law, and it's part of the Newt and Joe Minow debate series. Our debates are generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Clea Connor is our CEO. Amy Kraft is Chief of Staff. Shale Mara is Director of Editorial. Connor Kerfman is our creative and marketing strategist. Jennifer Zelmer is our senior researcher. Mary Dewey and Aaron Dalton are our radio producers. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host and your moderator, John Donvan. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.